church and those who are outside the body of Christ to know the will of God. And we are grateful for the tremendous work that they're doing. If you don't know about Kyle Publications, I hope that tonight, don't log on now, okay, we're getting ready to hear a sermon, but I hope afterwards that you'll log on to kylepublications.org and uh, take a look at the numerous resources that they have available. A lot of material that they've written, a lot of books and other uh, authors that they have published, and they've got a podcast. In fact, I think we're live on their podcast tonight, something, ask Joe, right? No, Hey Joe Show, I got that, the Hey Joe Show. So uh, a great uh, podcast that has to do with family matters. So a tremendous resource that is available to you in the church. So please uh, avail yourself of that and tell others about it as well. Uh, Joe graduated from the Nashville School of Preaching and also uh, earned a master's of ministry degree from Fried Hardeman University. And uh, he travels a lot as a, a frequent speaker and as I mentioned, has written a number of books. You might want to know about this, the Family Devotional Series, a book that is also called um, Game Plan, Developing a, a Spiritually Winning Strategy for Adults and Teens in Today's Culture. That took up the whole page on the front, but that's uh, another great book. And, of course, many other resources that I mentioned. He also uh, is working some with uh, Fried Hardeman University, as a lot of you may have attended the uh, uh, luncheon that he had the other day. Joe, we appreciate you and, uh, and Aaron and so much, all that you do. And he is a fine speaker. You're going to find that out tonight. We love you and we thank God for you. Come and preach to us, brother. I appreciate the opportunity to, to be here today and to have been able to be here this weekend. Um, this is my first opportunity. This is our first opportunity to join you at the lectureships here at Bear Valley. And uh, I have been impressed. And I want to thank those on the planning committee. I want to thank those who had a part in this. Uh, but seriously, from the bottom of my heart, the speakers have been so great uh, this weekend that for me to be able to, uh, as Corey said, to be the bitter end, you know, I'll take whatever. I, I think Michael said there's a, that wasn't the last P. I'll be the last P in the bowl. I'm okay with that, uh, but it's an honor to be here with you. And thank you, John, for all your work and what you and Miss Carla do uh, in the kingdom. It's, it's great to be here. I want to tell you, uh, maybe bring you back to a time uh, that happened not too long ago in Florida. As a matter of fact, many of you heard about it because you probably heard about the, the difficulties that existed and, and the political talk and the news uh, sway that, that would occur regarding the collapse of a condominium uh, there in Surfside, Florida. And of course, you can see the details that exist there. You can see that at 1.25 at night, uh, for the period of 12 seconds, uh, absolute terror would exist in the lives of those individuals. And as a matter of fact, there are individuals that, as I understand it, are still being sought after, and you can see what the death toll is and the talks that are happening. But the question that I have tonight as it pertains to my assigned topic is, why did that condominium collapse? And the truth is that, that they can go back and they can see that reports had, had been made and, and complaints had been rendered uh, pertaining to the structural uh, aspect, the stability of that particular building. There was water damage that had occurred and, and that had been reported, but either way, the, the structural stability 
had been compromised. Now, why do I start with that tonight? I start with that because the idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, being something that is, is asserted, something that is claimed in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is, is something that you and I probably will take for granted. And as a matter of fact, when you and I comb through that particular text, we've got to really kind of uh, understand what Paul was saying to the audience. And then I want to back away from that and tell you why this is so significant. Because when we look at chapter 15 and verse 6, the Apostle Paul makes a claim regarding how do we know? How do you know the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happened? You see, this whole weekend, today specifically, I've been the guy who was, who was sweating it going, okay, do I need to take this point out, that point out? Because everybody today, it seemed like, was touching on an aspect of this. And that's great because there's so much in chapter 15 that, that to unravel it just in a few lessons is impossible. But here's why I, I, I say that maybe we take for granted, maybe we miss the concept of the structural stability of that condominium. And here's why. Because when it comes to the issue of how do you know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually occurred, the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth there in verse 6, in the list of the four category of whom Jesus appeared to, he says this, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Most of whom remain until now. So in other words, you can go ask these people. If you really want to know, was the resurrection of Jesus Christ historically accurate, then you can go and talk to them. Now here's why the dilemma arises today. Because in my dealing with young people throughout the country, I cannot list a short list. I cannot tell you on one hand uh, how many individuals that I know have had their faith compromised by the undermining of concepts regarding Scripture. If it wasn't being undermined because of Scripture itself, in other words, oh, Scripture's not inspired by God. As a matter of fact, it's no inspired than Shakespeare's writings were inspired. Or the concept of God doesn't exist. I mean, after all, we don't need God to exist. Humans can sit on the throne. We've introduced uh, macroevolution to deal away with God. Therefore, you replace God, you undermine the Scriptures, and you truly are left with a humanistic viewpoint of life. The truth is, maybe some of you, and maybe in some of your church directories, if you went back over the past 25 years, it would be quite interesting to look at faces of people who sat in Bible classes, individuals whom you taught who had their faith destroyed, or that stability rocked is a better way to say that. And so here's my, my presentation. Here's my lesson tonight. Here's the angle that I want to take before you tonight. And that is this. You tell me that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of my faith. How do I know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually occurred? You tell me the Bible says that, which is great, but I'm going to play the other side of that. You tell me then that I must believe in the Bible to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. What if the individuals that you deal with don't believe in the Bible? How will we, how will we address a world that is growing ever, ever more skeptical? How will we deal with a world who says, we want, we want truth, we don't want facts? 
How do we deal with a world that, that is increasingly becoming individuals who believe what we're doing here today is irrelevant to their life? I would love to tell you that, that culture doesn't play into this discussion as far as how are we going to, to be the light that God's called us to be. But the truth is, we've got to know how to relate this message to people. And so my task tonight is this, and I, I know I, I, it's not going to be enough, okay? But it'll be what they've given me. John was quite, quite kind to hit start on some timer up here, which I appreciate his kindness, but... But then I also was made mention of, I'm the last guy, but Denny, I love you and I want to come back. I don't want this to be it. So here's the deal. I can't unravel everything for you. But what I would like for you and I to do this evening is to consider these four points. Tonight, my goal is to show you through looking at the concept of Jesus being a real historical person and that Jesus really did die as something that, that plays into this. I also want you to understand, and I don't have to prove this at this point, but I do want you to understand that there was a tomb, and the tomb was empty. Now, we can talk about how and why, and we will, because one of those concepts, one of those points, are the theories that man throw out regarding the empty tomb. However, I also want you to believe that there's legitimate, logical evidence to believe the resurrection account. And then what I want to talk about is the significance of that resurrection. And so tonight as we begin, I want you to understand something, and that is this, that Jesus was a historical figure who led a religious group and was crucified. Now as I assert that, though, I want you to understand there are plenty of individuals who are ready to try to tell you and to tell the world that Jesus was not even a historical individual. That not only are we not even to the resurrection yet, we're to the point of that I, I assert that Jesus isn't even real. And one of the ways that they do that, this particular article written by an individual who at one time was an evangelical in the, in, in the umbrella of Christianity, but now has abandoned that and writes in numerous posts and numerous newspapers regarding the, the holes that exist for individuals who believe in Jesus this individual claims that no first century scholar evidence whatsoever exists to support the actuality of Yeshua ben Joseph, Jesus son of Joseph. The earliest New Testament writers seem ignorant of the details of Jesus' life, which become more crystallized in later texts. In other words, we don't see a lot about it early on. Number three, even the New Testament stories don't claim to be first-hand accounts. Number four, the Gospels, our only accounts of a historical Jesus, incorrect, contradict each other. And number five, modern scholars who claim to have uncovered the real historical Jesus depict wildly different persons. And here's what I want you to understand about this individual. Presuppositions, when you reach conclusions before you ever study the facts, you will always get the conclusion that you want to get. In other words, if you already have decided where you're going, then there's no reason to consider the evidence. Because whatever evidence you drum up is going to support where you're going. And individuals who are atheists or agnostics, they would love to tell you that Christians, that we're the only ones who do that. See, I, I, am, I am unapologetic. I have a bias that the Bible is accurate. And therefore, it shapes everything about me. However, I am also understanding that individuals who believe the Bible is not accurate, that that shapes everything about them. 
So we cannot go into this, nor should we, with our heads hanging low where individuals assert that you only believe that because you're a Christian. To which we need to be able to logically respond and say, you only believe that because you've already made up your mind that what I believe is ignorant. You say, well, why would that matter? It matters because when you're having a, 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 an intellectually dishonest conversation with somebody, it's okay to point that out. You're not even willing to look at the facts. And so here's the deal. Tonight, the goal is to look at the facts. The goal is simply to go where, where they take us. And I thought this was quite interesting. An individual by the name of F.F. Bruce, many of you maybe have, have referenced him in some of your research. He would say this. Some writers may toy with the fancy of a Christ myth, but they do not do so on the ground of historical evidence. He would go on to say the historicity of Christ is as axiomatic for an unbiased historian as the historicity of Julius Caesar. It is not historians who propagate the Christ myth theory, which I thought was wonderfully put. Because true historians, they'll look at the evidence and they'll say, well, this makes sense. So what evidence do we have then that individuals could consider? Well, I will show you two and you probably have seen these. If you have not, I would encourage you to pick up some apologetics material. Check out Apologetics Press website. That would be an easy one. Perhaps Christian Courier. Uh, a lot of options that are out there. But I thought this particular quote is definitely worth mentioning from an individual, Cornelius Tacitus, who was most famous for his writings regarding the time period of Nero, period between AD 14 to AD 68, of which he would say this regarding Neo's, Nero's treatment of Christians. He would say, but not all the relief that could come from man, not all the bounties that the prince could bestow, nor all the atonements which could be presented to the gods availed to relieve Nero from what had happened, basically, from the fires of Rome. Then he goes on to say this, hence to suppress the rumor, he falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most exquisite tortures the persons commonly called Christians who were hated for the enormities. Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius, but the pernicious superstition, interesting way to put that, repressed for a time, broke out again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also. In other words, these Christians, they really believed that Christ existed. Now, here's what's interesting. Tacitus did not, did not claim that Jesus didn't exist. He just has this concept of the superstition that they put forth. But he gives credibility to the one who was put to death by Pontius Pilate. Well, what about this individual? Many of you have heard of Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian from A.D. 37 through 100. Many of you may not know, though, that he was more than just a historian. He was a commander of Jewish troops during what is known as the first Jewish rebellion against Rome between A.D. 66 and A.D. 73. Josephus would say this regarding the high priest, and I'm, I'm moving along quickly. There's more quotes in the book. Feel free to look that up. He would say this regarding the high priest who, who took uh, some advantage of other individuals being out of town, basically. Festus was now dead and Albinus was upon the road. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus who was called Christ, whose name was James, James being the brother of Jesus, and some others or some of his companions. 
And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. Now, the significance of that particular quote is not in anything other than me needing to show you that Jesus was a historical figure. Now, you at this point in time, I'm not asking you to come to conclusions on who Jesus was. I'm just simply saying to you that there is evidence to conclude through history outside of the Bible that there is one named Jesus, one who was called the Christ, one who was crucified or put to death by Pilate, and that there's some superstition that exists regarding this individual. I thought this was quite interesting. Dr. Bart Ehrman, a James A. Gray Distinguished Professor at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, he had this to say when asked about the historicity of Jesus. This is not even an issue for scholars of antiquity. The reason for thinking Jesus existed is because he is abundantly attested in early sources. If you want to go where the evidence goes, I think that atheists have done themselves a disservice by jumping on the bandwagon of mysticism because frankly it makes you look foolish to the outside world. If that's what you're going to believe, you just look foolish. To which I would happen to agree with Professor in that particular case. But the idea is this. Jesus was a historical figure. He was a historical individual. Second is this though. Jesus was laid in a sealed tomb guarded by Roman soldiers. Now I will say this. I want you to understand my default. My default is the scriptures are accurate. So if I'm talking to an individual that's struggling with the stability of their faith. I have got to establish that the scriptures are credible, right? Because if I choose to try to attack this without the, the background of the scriptures, without the credibility of the scriptures at the foundation or the basis, then there will be a, a, a hindrance to that cause. So what I tell you that is to say this. I want you to look in the scriptures with me. Because I want you to see even what the Jewish individuals attested to Throughout this particular book, throughout the, the accounts of Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John chapter 20. Those are the accounts of the resurrections of Jesus, of the resurrection of Jesus. However, we're not going to consider all of those in the sense of let's read every chapter. But what I do want you to understand is this, that when we turn our Bibles over to the book of Matthew, I want you to open up Matthew chapter 27. I want you to see the, the concept regarding here the, the concern of the chief priest and the Pharisees. You see, there had been multiple interactions with Jesus and the Pharisees in the past to which he would tell them of the resurrection that was to come. Now, you look at that and you can say, well, hey, if they didn't believe it, then why were they worried come time for the tomb seal, right? Why were they worried? If they didn't believe it, if they didn't think it was a possibility. But here's what is interesting. When I look over at Matthew 27, verses 63 and following, you find an interaction between the chief priests, the Pharisees, and Pilate, where the Bible says, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. I think it's quite interesting that when you start looking at the concept of Jesus, a historical individual being laid in a grave, and that that concept of the resurrection being real, you find individuals who are already concerned that there would be an empty tomb. 
Before that tomb was sealed, you find this concept, or as the tomb is, you find the concept of that there's a concern. And that concern is this. Hey, those disciples, those disciples are going to come in. And if that tomb is empty, then, then we've got a problem. I think it's also quite interesting that when the tomb is found to be empty over, we find in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 13, that the rulers of the Jewish elites would say to the guards, he, they would say this, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, there's some issues with that. There are a lot of issues with that. As a matter of fact, questions that I wrote down were this. Since the guards were to be awake, why were they told to tell people they were asleep? I mean, after all, this sounds counterproductive. Guards are at the tomb for a reason. Therefore, if they tell people they were asleep on the job, what kind of future is that for those particular guards? Not a very good one. And here's what's also interesting. If they were asleep... Yet because the disciples came and they unsealed the tomb and they rolled it away, the, the stone away, why is the guards, obviously they knew the disciples came to get them. That was the message, right? So why didn't they stop them? Obviously they must have been awake to know the disciples took the body. So why didn't they stop them? The other aspect is this. If they know that it was the disciples who were responsible for the missing body of Christ, why don't they do everything in their power to go get the body? Have you ever thought about that? All they had to do was show a body and Christianity is done. But see, here's the reality. They didn't go after the body because the body wasn't here. The reality was this. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 2 through 4, the Bible tells us, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. You know why they didn't find the body? It was because the body was, was already gone. But here's the reality. Here's the reality. The guards didn't fail. I know that sounds silly, right? The guards guarded the tomb. But they were never going to stop the plan of God. The guards were there. They were guarding it. The reality was this. They were not going to deal with the angel of the Lord. They weren't going to deal with the earthquake. They weren't going to deal with what they saw. That's why the Bible says they became as dead men. Church, do you understand that the resurrection of Jesus, at least the empty tomb, if we're nothing else to say the tomb is at least found to be empty, the reality is this. The guards' response, the Jews' response, all point to that tomb was found empty. When I look back at what I mentioned to you before, and Jesus is a historical individual, and I talk about the superstition that Tacitus would talk about, the idea behind Jesus and the empty tomb was one that was well known. That's why it is quite interesting. And I didn't put this here on the slide for you to see, but I would encourage you to go look this up. There's something called the Nazareth inscription. And the Nazareth inscription was believed to have been written by Emperor Claudius around AD 41. And you look at the time period of when, when, first, when the Corinthian letters were written, you consider the time period of the, the crucifixion of Jesus. We're talking roughly within 10 years of the time period of Jesus being crucified, the Nazareth inscription says this, It is my decision concerning graves and tombs 
Whoever has made them for the religious observance of parents or children or household members, that these remain undisturbed forever. But if anyone legally charges that another person has destroyed or has in any manner extracted those who have been buried, it has moved with wicked intent those who have been buried to other places, committing a crime against them, or has moved uh, sepulchral sealing stones against such a person. I order that a judicial tribunal be created. In other words, he tells them that they're called a tomb breaker and that they are to suffer capital punishment. Now here's what's interesting. This is Rome. If Claudius is the writer of this, and if it's around the time of AD 41... That was within 10 years. And when you go back to look at the time period of the writing of the Corinthian letter, folks, we're, we're in that same concept, that same time frame, actually earlier. And so what's interesting is this. There's obviously something circulating regarding a tomb that was empty. Otherwise, why would there be such concern? And there's such a concern because if the tomb is empty, then there's a problem for those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. For those who do not submit to the will of the Father. So here's the deal. When it comes to the theories that individuals come up with, these are four that I would just simply bring to your attention. And you'll notice I have a wad of paper there because quite frankly, upon looking at all of these, they belong in the garbage can. That's what they belong to. So number one, the hallucination theory. The hallucination theory basically says this. Everybody who is one who testifies to the resurrection of Jesus is hallucinating. They all have had some type of occurrence that has come over them. If they think they saw him, it was a hallucination. If they think they dealt with him, it was a hallucination. And all of this points to the concept of they all had to have the exact same hallucination. You realize how difficult that is? Some of you have dreams at night. I'm guessing you do. I don't know. Every now and again, Miss Erin will wake up mad at me for what I did in her dream. I'm not real sure what that is. But either way, I've yet to wake up mad at her for what she did in my dream. I don't know. But either way, the idea is this. Can you imagine individuals all having the same hallucination? All having the same dream, the same details, the same concepts? And what's point to there is this. It really belittles, it belittles the account. Especially when you look at the idea that in John chapter 11... And verse 24, there's not even a belief in this concept of resurrection after three days that was rampant amongst Judaism. In dealing with Lazarus, John chapter 11 and verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You also find John chapter 20 and verse 9, the statement that when the individuals came to the tomb and they saw the tomb that was empty, I think it's brilliant because the Bible says John chapter 20 and verse 9 for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. It wasn't as if it was a rampant belief system that was circulating. And so the hallucination theory really does leave a lot to be uh, answered. The swoon theory. I've got to hurry up on this one. The swoon theory holds that Jesus was not truly dead when he went into the tomb. In other words, it asserts that after all of his beatings, his scourging, hanging on the cross, the spear that was thrust through him, um, the idea is this. He was laid in the tomb as an individual that everybody thought was dead, but really when he got in that tomb in that cold air without any medical treatment, that he came back, that he wasn't really dead. He just had that sense of kind of knocked out idea. What's interesting is that John Stott, 
a writer on this particular subject said this, After the rigors and pains of trial, mockery, flogging, and crucifixion, he could survive 36 hours in a stone sepulcher with neither warmth nor food nor medical care. That's a question. That he could then rally sufficiently to perform the superhuman feat of shifting the boulder which secured the mouth of the tomb and without disturbing the Roman guard. That then, weak and sickly and hungry, he could appear to the disciples in such a way as to give impressions that he had vanquished death. In other words, even his appearance that was recorded did not look like an individual who had been faking death or near death but had come back to life. The theft theory is exactly what was, uh, what was put forth by the, the Jewish elite that his disciples came in and stole his body. Matthew 28, 11 through 15. Uh, search that. But then there are other quotes that I'm going to leave you to look in the, in the book for from Justin Martyr and Tertullian regarding the, uh, the body of Christ and regarding the concept that was circulating that his disciples stole the body. The other one is this, the wrong tomb theory. It's quite interesting. It's the concept of this. You ever been in a parking lot of a supermarket and gone out to a car and tried to open a door that really wasn't your car, but it looked like it was your car? That's this concept. The individuals just saw the wrong tomb. I mean, they forgot. You know, this was such a minimal event that occurred that they just forgot what tomb was there. And I think it's quite interesting Because in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 61, the Bible will record this. After that tomb to the entrance was sealed, and Mary Magdalene was there, the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. You find individuals who were sitting watching the tomb. They were there. On top of all of that, you find individuals who were standing guard at the tomb. One individual said this, if you want to know what tomb was the right tomb, just look for the guards who were standing over it interesting is that when you see all of this, the concept is that it's just simply a dismissal. Theories of individuals who have already concluded that Jesus was not resurrected from the dead have come up with ridiculous ideas as to why they would say he has, uh, that it, it never happened in the first place. The body was stolen, wrong tomb, Jesus walked out, or everybody just hallucinated. Either way, I want you to understand how ridiculous those concepts are. Jesus was a historical figure. Jesus really was killed. He was crucified by Pilate. Jesus was laid in a tomb. There's concern that that body would be gone. And by evidence, we see the reaction of the Jews. That body was gone. And we even know that a superstition was existing. So the idea is this. When you dismiss all the theories, then you come to the concept of the evidence to believe in the resurrection account. And I would like to, without going too far into this, because there's more than I have the time to go into, I want you to consider two concepts. The first one, though, is time. Because one assertion regarding the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, rather, is that it's a Roman legend. In other words, it's a legend much like any other legend that would exist over time. But here's the concept. The idea of time, and when you start looking at when the the account of the resurrection of Jesus was being circulated, it doesn't fit the timetable necessary for a Roman legend to come about. In other words, it's this. They're already telling it too quickly. There's an individual by the name of Dr. William Craig, who was professor of philosophy at Houston Baptist University and research professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology. 
he would have this to say regarding the time that was necessary for a legend to come about. For in order for these stories to be in the main legendary, a very considerable length of time must be available for the evolution to develop of the traditions until the historical elements have been supplanted by unhistorical. An individual by the name of A.N. Sherwin White who wrote a book entitled Roman Law and Roman Society in the New Testament. He's known as an individual who would be in the scholarly level regarding that time period. He would say that in order for a legend to come about in typical Roman time that there would have to be multiple generations. I believe he said at least two generations would have had to pass because individuals who actually knew what happened would have to die off before individuals who made up a story would be able to take over. Can you imagine an individual who makes up a story coming up to a person who was really there and saying, hey, this is what happened, and the other person saying, I was there. That's not what happened. And so what this guy says is it normally would take two generations for the guy who was there to die off so the people who weren't there and were just making up the legend for it to be able to be circulated widely as a legend in Rome. Now here's the problem with that. We already find that when you consider the date and the time of the writers of the New Testament Gospels, that it doesn't fit the multiple generation concept. That's why individuals who want to belittle the Gospel accounts are really trying to tell you that you dismiss everything that's there because you really can't believe the dates anyway. That's not true. But you may have to establish that with someone. The idea behind all of this is when you really start looking at it, I want you to understand that the Apostle Paul was not the originator of this particular account of the resurrection. When you and I go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I think it's quite interesting that we read this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And some individuals have looked at that and said, well, what do you mean in the sense of uh, that he delivered what he, uh, or that he, uh, he delivered to them as a first importance what he had received? And you go back to Acts chapter 9 on his road to Damascus and you understand the conversion. You understand the call to ministry, what is revealed there. But then it's also interesting for you and I to understand in looking at Galatians chapter 1 verses 15 through 19, that the Apostle Paul actually went away for a period of three years. After his conversion, he went away for a period of three years. In verse 18 of Galatians chapter 1, Then three years later I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, and stayed with him fifteen days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother." Now, individuals look at that and they ask questions of which the scriptures don't answer at that particular time. But it does make you wonder, what did they talk about for 15 days? There's a part of me who says, they had to have talked about their experience. They had to have exchanged stories. They had to have exchanged the eyewitness account of the empty tomb and the eyewitness account of the resurrection Savior. The idea is this, hey, you know what, there's something about this and... And when you think about Paul giving to the church at Corinth what he had received himself, questions are asked, well, was that something that maybe was given in Acts chapter 9? Uh, was it something that was told here in Galatians chapter 1? Either way, the point is I don't have to answer that question because I'm not sure it can be answered. But the idea is this, the Apostle Paul was not the originator of the resurrection account. As a matter of fact, you can go back to Acts chapter 8 and see that Paul 
Saul, excuse me, was persecuting individuals who were willing to die for an individual that they believed with everything that they were had been resurrected and that there was an eternity that was waiting for them. It existed before the Apostle Paul. Now, that means this, that it really can go further back than two generations. It can go up to the point in time not too far after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And folks, let me tell you something. That doesn't fit the Roman concept of a legend. It breaks the mold. Therefore, the conclusion is time is a witness against the legendary concept but for the resurrection of Jesus. Second to that is this. If I were going to come up with a legend... And this is quite interesting. I would not have put women at the forefront of the witness stand. Not because, ladies, you can't recount uh, what really happened. Look, I, I believe wholeheartedly you can. It happens a lot. But the idea is this. John chapter 4 and verse 27. When you start looking at this idea, there was something to the concept of the witness idea. Because women were not looked at the same in, in our culture, in their culture as they are in our culture. And so even going back to the Samaritan woman at the well, John chapter 4, there was great concern of why was he even speaking to a woman? I thought it was quite interesting. Dr. William Craig, who I mentioned earlier to you, he had this to say regarding the status of women in Jewish society. He said, women occupied a low rung on the Jewish social ladder. This is evident in such rabbinic expressions as this, sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to a woman. And another quote, happy is he whose children are male, but woe to him whose children are female. Those are not my quotes. Just want you to know that, okay? Dr. Craig would also go on to say this regarding the testimony of women. The testimony of women was regarded as so worthless that they were not even permitted to serve as legal witnesses in a court of law. In light of these facts, how remarkable must it seem that it is women who are the discoverers of Jesus' empty tomb. If this had been a legend that had come about in typical Roman fashion, women would never have been the ones credited with seeing that tomb. I think it's quite interesting. Thank you for keeping up with me. Anyhow, the idea is this, that when you really start looking at the empty tomb, the historical aspect, the theories, I want you to know something that I believe with everything that I am in a very short duration of a sermon delivery that there's reason to believe the resurrection of Jesus was a historical event. I do not believe that we have to shy away from that. But the question remains now is, okay, what's the significance of that? And so what I want to do is introduce you to two verses. And the two verses go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. They've been covered a lot, but I want you to see kind of where I look at this because it's, it is quite interesting to see chapter 15 in its totality and then, obviously, in the totality of the Scriptures, which has been done well already at this point. But I want you to see, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that if Christ had not been raised, which, by the way, is stated two times, verse 14 and verse 17, but the idea of if the dead haven't been raised is mentioned numerous times. It is definitely an argument of an if-then concept. If this is the case, then this is the result. If this is the case, this is the result. So here's the deal. If Christ had not been raised, verse 14, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And then when you go down to verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Verse 18, then those who have, been, who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Anyhow, you run the list. You know that'll preach. You've already heard it preached. 
If Christ had not been raised, these are the consequences of all of that. Now what's interesting in this case though is he builds it up to the idea of that the tomb of Jesus Christ was empty. Verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. In other words, he's no longer dealing with it from the standpoint of if this had not happened, if it had not happened. I am asserting that it has happened. And because it has happened, there are ramifications in your life and in mine. And that's where he goes when you flip over to the end of the chapter. And I hate to pass all of this up because he's building up, has been discussed, what kind of body will we have? Why are individuals being uh, baptized uh, for the sake of the dead? If you don't even believe it, I thought that was a great point. If you don't even believe in the resurrection, why is this occurring? Right? But you're doing it, which shows a conflicted concept of reality. But the idea is this. Look, what kind of body are we going to have? Wayne Berger did a wonderful job. I don't know. You know, it's going to be what God wants us to have. But here's what I do know. It's going to be imperishable. Verse 42, verse 50, verse 52, verse 53, verse 54. He already alluded and already spoke about the imperishable wreath, chapter 9. So the idea of where, where are we going, where we're going is this, better than where we are now. And all of that is based upon the concept of the tomb of Jesus Christ was empty. But I want you to know something. It doesn't stop there. I don't see that in all of this that he just stops with a, hey, I just want to prove to you that Jesus' tomb was found empty. I believe there's a okay, now what concept. And here's what's beautiful. When the Bible tells you therefore, it's telling you therefore. In other words, what all I've told you, now let me make application to that. Make me, let me bring that to light. And here's the deal in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. I talked with Corey later, earlier today. I said, have you ever noticed the vain concepts in this text? You go back to chapter 15 and verse 2, unless you believed in vain. You go over to chapter four, uh, 15, verse 14, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. You go at the very end, unless, you know, don't, don't worry, your work of the, uh, within the Lord, that your toil is not in vain. He made some comment. He goes, you know what, next time I look at chapter 15, it'll be the Ecclesiastes of the New Testament. It's vanity. If Jesus' tomb is full, then it's vanity what we do. Here's the good news. The tomb of Jesus is empty. But that means this. Not only should you and I have confidence in our own salvation. Not only should we understand the hope that we live with and that we will leave here with. And we will go sleep tonight with. He says something that just really hits me. He says this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Brethren, can I kindly tell you this? And you know this. May be fitting for the last lecture of the whole, whole thing. I don't know. Because the tomb of Jesus is empty, you and I have some work to do in this world. Amen. Don't leave here only with an assurance. We want you to, I know I want you to have that. But leave here with a renewed zeal that there's more to be done in your context. And I don't know where your context is. I don't know what doors are open to you. But what I do know is this. Always be abounding in the work of the Lord because the tomb is empty. Because I will tell you this, I can point you back 
to a stability that wasn't there. And I can point you back to a structure that crumbled. And what's interesting is this. When you and I go back to that point in time, we see that there were reports as early as 2018 that there was a problem. We even see in April 2021 that there were were reports of problems. And we can even see that there were $15 million allocated to, to have upgrades on this condo before it crashed. And here's the reality. We can identify that there was a problem, but you cannot have a, stabi- a, a building that lacks stability stand forever and you can't just know there's a problem. Church, i got to tell you something. There is a problem in the world, in your culture, and in your context that needs to know the tomb was empty. Amen. And that's on your shoulders and mine as we leave this place. You know why? Because the empty tomb has made such a difference in your life. It can make a difference in someone else's. You and I are transferred individuals who are continually transforming into what God would have us to be. We are individuals who are called to be the light and the salt as we bring glory to God and to boldly proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into light. I pray tonight, I pray tonight at the end of this lecture that you like me are encouraged, but that you like me are ready to go back to work. And I pray that God will open those doors of opportunity for you. Thank you so much. God bless.